Let's pray and then we'll get started. Pray with me together. Father, we thank you for this day. We're especially thankful that today you've cleared out the smoke and we could breathe in and say, ah, the fresh mountain air that has come in and you've given us life through this breath. Thank you for saving us, those who follow Jesus, and for those who haven't decided to follow Jesus yet. Thank you that you're here and listening to the words of the scriptures that so bless us. Lord, speak your words through Vicki and I. Help people get to know you better today. And all God's people said, amen. Well, good morning again, 26 West Church. As has been said, my name is Steve Marshman, and my wife Vicki Marshman will join me in a little bit. I'm one of the leaders here at 26 West. And I want to start with some family information. One of our favorite family movies is the classic movie, The Princess Bride. Yeah, we have some fans here. And if you don't know that movie, there's a villain in the movie named Vicini, and he's hired to kidnap Buttercup. Now, Vicini is a self-proclaimed genius, and he's constantly using this word, inconceivable. And he uses it so much that if you remember the movie that Inigo Montoyo says, I don't think you know what that, me that word means. It doesn't mean what you think it means. What does that word actually mean? Well, inconceivable is a little bit different than the word we normally use, which is unbelievable. Inconceivable means impossible to comprehend, something you would not expect. It's kind of crazy. Today we would say something like, that's insane. Not just unbelievable, but there's a little craziness to it. And today we're going to open the scriptures. You could start doing that to Hebrews chapter 11. And we're going to look at a couple stories today that are inconceivable. They're hard to believe and they're a little bit crazy. We're in the uh, tail end of a summer series titled By Faith, and we've been walking through Hebrews chapter 11. And when you get there, by the way, turn to verses 30 and 31. And today we're going to explore just those two verses, verses 31. But there are two stories from, get this, 3,400 years ago. It's kind of cool for me to think that the Bible in our hands is ancient, 3,400 years ago. I have a hard time remembering what I had for breakfast yesterday. This is 3,400 years ago. But it's the story of the fall of Jericho and the story of Rahab. So I'm going to share the story of Jericho, and Vicki's going to come up and share the story of Rahab. So let's read together verses 30 and 31. Hebrews 11, verses 30 and 31. By faith, that's the title of the series, obviously. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell after the army had marched around them for seven days. Verse 31, by faith, the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. Now, I know some of you here today are not very familiar with the story, so I'm just going to give you a quick background of what's going on. Jericho was a fortified, walled city in the land of Canaan, which is the land that God promised to the Israelites all the way back in Genesis chapter 12. And the Canaanite people were very wicked and corrupt, and they served wicked and corrupt gods. These gods of the Canaanites requested things like child sacrifice. I mean, how do you get more evil than that? I don't know. And they also promoted really perverted sexual acts. About 500 years of this was going on, and God finally says, enough. And he tells Joshua, who had taken over the leadership reins of Israel from Moses, he tells Joshua that the Lord is going to deliver Jericho to the Israelites. And the method that he does this is what's so unusual and spectacular 
And it's a story of faith of a community. And embedded in that story is this uh, faith of a seemingly unimportant woman named Rahab. And she's a prostitute. And she helped the Israelite spies uh, find out some intelligence about Jericho. What ties these two stories together today is a faith that leads to action. And we could learn from that. You know, we kind of know intuitively that our faith should lead us to do something. It shouldn't be just stuck up in our heads. Walt Disney says it this way. The way to get started is to quit talking and start doing. We know that to be true. Ben Franklin, even, even simpler, well done is better than well said. And that's what we want to be. We want to be the type of Christians that actually take our faith and go do something. It's interesting to me that the book of James, which is kind of like the Proverbs of the New Testament, kind of, helps us with this idea of faith that leads to action. And all the stories of the Old Testament he could use, he uses this story of Jericho and Rahab to explain a faith that, leading, that leads to action. Uh, you don't need to turn there, but we're going to put James chapter 2, uh, verse 24 and 26 on the screen. And uh, we can read it to there. You can look at it on the screen while I read it. James 2, verse 24 to 26. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? Here's the key line of what I want to get across to you. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. This is a really important concept for us to get today. In multiple places in the Bible, we find two different truths that are complementary. They look contradictory sometimes, but they're complementary. The first truth is, th is this. Salvation is, be, is by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Salvation is by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. It's not of works. We've heard that many, many times. But there's another giant truth, foundational truth in the Bible. And it's this. Real faith results in action. And that's what James is telling us when he says faith without deeds is dead. He's like, I'm not sure if your faith is real. Because if you have a real faith, it should lead you to action. And it's that second truth, the real faith leads to action, which is going to be our focus today in the story of Jericho and the story of Rahab. As we explore further these two stories, uh, Vicky, are, Vicky and I are going to bring out two concepts. The first one comes out of the fall of Jericho. And this is, this is what we're going to call inconceivable obedience. And the second one is going to come out of the story of Rahab, and that's an inconceivable trust. This is an obedience that is like, wow, that's kind of crazy obedience. And this is a trust that's like, wow, that's kind of crazy trust. But they're true. If you have your Bibles, turn to Joshua chapter 6 or your iPhones. And uh, Kelly mentioned a flip phone. Does anybody have a flip phone? I kind of want to see what they look like. <laughs> the hinge still works. That's amazing. Uh, but let's, let's go to Joshua chapter 6. And we're going to start in verse 1. And as you turn there, let me give you the context of the story so far as we start in Joshua chapter 6. What has happened so far is that Israel had crossed over the Jordan River into the promised land. The exodus from Egypt has already happened. The Israelites had wandered in the desert for 40 years, messing up time and time and time again. And then they, they were had, having some success with battles with the Amorites and some other uh, nations. 
Uh, but they were starting to get the nation back on track. Circumcision and Passover had just been reinstated. So the nation was getting back on God's plan for them. And then we pick up the story here in Joshua chapter 6, verse 1, which says this. Now the gates of Jericho were securely barred because of the Israelites. No one went out and no one came in. Let's just stop here for a second. Jericho, this fortified walled city, had shut the gates and they weren't letting anybody in and out. The way we should think of that is Jericho had put themselves on lockdown. Why? Because out in the valley, there's this clan of Israelites, probably about 2 million people, and probably about five or 600,000 of them were men of age that can fight. Verse 2, it says, Then the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have delivered Jericho into your hands, along with its king and its fighting men. Now, just for a second to the guys, Joshua is kind of the stereotypical man's man. He's strong. He's courageous. But I got to believe that Joshua is looking at that fortified city with some evil people in it that want to probably kill him. And the Lord says, see, I've delivered Jericho into your hands. Joshua's probably going, I don't actually see that, Lord. <laughs> All I see is a city with a bunch of evil people. What do you mean you've given it into my hands? Well, keep reading here. March, uh, verse 3, march around the city uh, once with all the armed men. Do this for six days. Have seven priests carry trumpets of ram's horns in front of the ark. On the seventh day, march around the city seven times with the priests blowing the trumpets. When you hear them sound a long blast on the trumpets, have the whole army give a loud shout. Then the wall of the city will collapse and the army will go up, everyone straight in. Now, let's be honest. If you were Joshua hearing this, how would you respond? I have very honest conversations in my prayer with the Lord. I've just gotten that way over the years because that whole, you know, thou, thee stuff never rang, rang true to me. So I speak very honestly to God in my prayer. I'm pretty sure if I heard this plan from God and I was Joshua, I would say, really, Lord, that's the best you got? How about this, God? Why don't you send your angelic army down to crush them, and we'll watch. Or how about this? Throw some fireballs down from heaven. Don't waste the angels. Just hit them with some fireballs. What's wrong with that plan? That's a decent plan. You could give us Jericho that way. But God says, mm, no, this is where we're going to do it. Imagine this. Imagine if you're one of the just the ordinary foot soldiers walking around this city seven days in a row. Could you imagine the side conversations? Joshua's lost it. This guy's smoking something. He's a total lunatic. But what probably became clear to the entire clan uh, marching around the city was day seven with the ark going before him every day, which, by the way, that represents the presence of God. By day seven, they realized that God is with them and this is his battle. And what happens at the end of the story, we'll see that the Israelites were obedient. They had this inconceivable obedience to carry out this crazy, inconceivable plan. We're not going to read the whole story, but skip down to verse 20. Let's read how this story ends. So they did this marching around once a day, six days, seven times, seven days. And then verse 20, when the trumpet sounded, the army shouted, and at the sound of the trumpet, when the men gave a loud shout, the wall collapsed, so everyone charged straight in, and they took the city. Now the foot soldiers are probably standing there like Vicini going, inconceivable. 
These walls just came crashing down and we go in. But they're probably saying, thank goodness that we chose to obey God. Fast forward to today. We have the same choice. If you're a follower of Jesus, he's with us, just like God was with the Israelites. Before ascending into heaven, Jesus said this, I will never leave you, nor will I forsake you. Then he leaves. Like, wait a minute, I thought you said you'd never leave us. And then he leaves. Well, obviously what he's talking about is he's going to send the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the presence in our lives. And we have the choice to obey the Holy Spirit and follow Jesus or not. And that is inconceivable obedience because we're following this person we can't see that lives inside of us. Even though we sometimes can't comprehend it, it's, comprehend it, it's true. And we want to live the obedient life. A couple quick takeaways from this story before we get into the story of Rahab. We live in the age of skepticism. Let's face it. We're a skeptical people. And sometimes that's good. Sometimes it's not. But here's the question. Is this story real or is it just folklore? What about archaeology? Does archaeological evidence support this Bible story? Well, I've done some studying on that recently, and my conclusion is yes, and I'll tell you why, and I'll tell you what the controversy is as well. I would say yes, because all archaeologists agree that Jero existed and the walls collapsed, and oh, by the way, there was a massive fire afterward that destroyed the city. I've actually been to the site of Jericho myself about seven years ago in 2010 and stood there, and it's huge. It's about 10 acres. You can see the evidence of the two walls. You can see that they've collapsed. And when you study the archaeologist findings, they go, yeah, this happened. Here's the controversy. When did it happen? That's the only debate. This is not that big of a deal, even though some people try to make it a big deal. The Bible scholars say the fall of Jericho was in 1406. If you want to know how they came up with that date, come see me afterwards. But everybody agrees, 1406. Archaeologists have agreed and disagreed over time. In the 1930s, a guy named, uh, what is that guy's name? John Garstang. He led the first big uh, dig in Jericho, and he said the city was destroyed about 1400 B.C., so it uh, completely agrees with the Bible story. Then in the 50s, another archaeologist came came along, Kathleen Kennan, and she said, no, I dated at 1550. Now, she's right. That's a problem because when Joshua and the army came, there's no walls. But she could be wrong. In fact, in the 1990s, Bryant Woods came along, and he said 1400 B.C. is correct. And what Bryant Wood's expertise is in is late Bronze Age pottery. This is a guy you want to have at your next party, you know. So tell me about those pots from, you know. But, but he could look at these pots and say this is from this age and this is from this age. And it looks to me like the walls fell in 1400 B.C. So I think that archaeology actually mostly backs up, but there is this debate over time. A couple other quick takeaways. This is a very unique story in the Bible. You don't see a lot of stories like this. And it's dealing with this Canaanite nation, which is very evil. And for a lot of us, me included, these are tough stories because this is God's perfect justice wiping out a city. I don't like that. And what happens to us is we start thinking in all the Bible, one of the biggest difficult questions is this. How do we understand God's love and God's justice how do they work together? Whenever I'm faced with that tough question, I, you don't have to turn there, but I always go back to Exodus 34, 6, and 7. And this is where God describes himself to Moses. Uh, I'm just going to read you a paraphrase of it. This is what that says. The Lord is compassionate 
gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. And that's where we start struggling. So we know that God is compassionate, loving, and forgiving. And we also know that his perfect justice requires punishment for the Canaanites' guilt and for my guilt and for your guilt and for my shame and for your shame. And this is inconceivable that Jesus actually takes that guilt. You and I don't take sin seriously enough. Our sin, even though it's probably not as evil as the Canaanites, it's still evil. It breaks our relationship with God. And it makes him incredibly saddened. And also his perfect justice can't allow him to be in the presence of our sin or us to be in the presence of God with our sin. So we need a savior. And this is amazing. Jesus is that savior. So he comes down from heaven and says, I'll take your punishment. But that punishment is required. But because Jesus takes our punishment, then we could be in the presence of God. Somebody needs to say amen. Because, <laughs> man, I'll tell you, I, I'm sorry I got choked up. I guess, you know, I've been around Jose long enough. I'm starting to become an honorary Puerto Rican. Uh, that's what him and his brothers call me, by the way. I'm the honorary Puerto Rican. Uh, but as important as that is, that's actually not the main point of today's story in, in uh, Hebrews. The main point of the passage today is the faith of a nation, the faith of a community, not just a single person. The faith of the Israelites to take action and to follow God's commands. Now, I was thinking this week, how could we as a church community today show that kind of faith? And it's just not as crazy as watch, watch, marching around the walls of Jericho, so don't be concerned. But how about this? What if we as a church rented out Hillsborough Stadium, that little stadium just down the road? What if we rented out that stadium? It's going to be expensive. It's about a thousand, uh, over, over $100,000. What if we rented that out next summer and invited thousands of people to come hear the gospel and then hopefully get baptized? That takes some faith. We could look like fools. But if you're getting an elbow in the ribs right now from the Holy Spirit, then do this. Join the elders in praying for an available date, and we'll give you more news on that. So that's the story of Jericho. We're bringing the A-team up now. Everybody help me introduce my wife. Uh, introduce. Help me welcome my wife, Vicki. She is, uh, she is my, my bride of, of um, 34 years, right? Does it say that? Yeah, wow. 34. 34 years. Way to go, dude. <laughs> <laughs> now, this woman's been uh, with me uh, for, for 34 years, and this is the most important thing you need to know about her. She's not perfect, but she's perfect for me. Aww. And that's, that's, that's important. So uh, Vicki's going to share the story of Rahab. Uh, the only thing you should know about her is she was my favorite classmate in seminary. Uh, but she always got better test scores than me, and of that I hold a little bit of a grudge. Love you. Love you. <laughs> wow, honey, thanks. We'll work on the number later. Three, four, three, four. Next year will be three, five. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> um, yeah, that was really sweet. It's uh, After 34 years, you can still make me feel really cherished. you got to love that. 
But before I get all choked up about that, it is really exciting to be here this morning and share the story of Rahab with you. And it, it is an especially meaningful story for me, but I'll get to that later. Right now, let's continue the story. Um, I'm going to leave this up here and hope they don't fall off. As Steve said, the Israelites have finally entered the Promised Land and crossed the Jordan River. But what I want to focus on is the story that kind of goes around the story of Jericho, the story of Rahab, which is found in Joshua 2, and then again at the end of uh, by Joshua 6. So it kind of bookends the story of Jericho. And it's just a really amazing personal story that God has in a woman's life in the middle of this amazing event that's the fall of Jericho. So here we go. Now Joshua wanted to get courage and intelligence on his enemies. So like any good general, he sends a couple of spies into the city to evaluate the people and its defenses. So the spies enter the house of Rahab, and this is where the story gets interesting. Now, before we go any further, we need to talk a little bit about Rahab. Who was she? Well, she was a Canaanite woman. She wasn't an Israelite. She lived in Jericho, and she was a prostitute. Some people have tried to soften this last part. In fact, Josephus, the first century historian, called Rahab an innkeeper. Because the verse, the word used in Joshua 2, verse 1, could be translated innkeeper. But the New Testament is clear. In Hebrews and in James, the word used for prostitute is exactly that. There's no avoiding that definition. And, in fact, it wasn't uncommon in that time for inns and brothels to operate out of the same building. And, really, if you think about it, it is a great place to collect intel for the spies since so many people are coming in and out of the building all the time. Even better, Rahab's house, or inn, was built into the city wall. So the spies didn't have to get very far into the city. They could go into the inn, they could gather their intel, and then they could get back out the gate if the need arose. And yet the king of Jericho did find out. They learned of these men. And the king sent spies to Rahab's house to arrest the men. But when the spies, when the soldiers got to Rahab's house, Rahab had already hidden the spies on her roof under flax stalks. And when the king's men arrived, she sends them out into the countryside on a wild goose chase. Oh, no, they were here, but they left. I'm sure you can catch them if you leave quickly. Now let's pause for a minute. Let's not just breeze over this because this is important. Rahab lied to the king's soldiers to protect foreign invaders. Rahab basically become a traitor to her own country. And by doing that, she placed not only herself but her entire family at risk of death because traitors were executed and not pleasantly. Then, then she went to the spies on the roof and she made a deal. Now, why would she do this? It doesn't seem either admirable or very smart. She's taking a huge Excuse me, taking a huge risk here. Well, I think the answer is found in Joshua 2, verses 8 through 13. We're going to read those. Before the spies lay down for the night, she went up on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given you this land and that a great fear of you has fallen on us, so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the waters of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt. And what you did to Sion and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear, and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. So what do we see in these verses? Well, first we see that Rahab knew of the promises that God had made to the Israelites. In fact, it seems all of Jericho did because she says, all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. And this was actually the intel that the spies eventually took back to Joshua. 
In verse 224, the spies tell Joshua, the Lord has surely given this whole land into our hands, all of the people melting in fear because of us. But Rahab also knew of God's amazing provision and protection for the Israelites, from the parting of the Red Sea to the destruction of Sion and Og, who were the last two Amorite kings that the Israelites destroyed before they crossed the Jordan River. Basically, all of Jericho knew the stories of God's power and provision for his people since the Israelites had left Egypt. It's kind of hard to miss two million people wandering around in the wilderness. Word gets around. Rahab also knew that Yahweh was the Lord in heaven above and on the earth below. This means that she knew God was more powerful than any of the Canaanite gods, and that's critical. So what did Rahab knew? She knew enough. She knew enough to let her knowledge lead her to faith, to let her faith lead her to trust, and to let her trust lead her to action. And it's important to note here that her knowledge was more than just head knowledge. After all, remember, all of Jericho knew the hard facts of what, what the Lord had done for Israel. Yet only Rahab was convinced to put her trust in God and to act. And only Rahab and her family were saved from destruction. So what was different about Rahab's faith? What did she have that the rest of Jericho didn't? Well, I think she had a faith that encompassed her whole heart. And let me tell you what I mean. In today's English, we separate the heart and the mind. And for the early Hebrews, they didn't do that. The heart was the seat of all that a person was, their intellect, their thoughts, their physical existence, their emotions, even their choices motivated by their desires. So while the rest of Jericho probably had the intellectual knowledge, and perhaps they sensed the emotional knowledge of who God was and what he can do, after all, they were melting in fear, none of them let it go deep enough to impact their choices or their desires. Jose mentioned a couple weeks ago, our faith guides our choices. And so Rahab's faith guided her choices. She chose to help the Israelites because she knew that God was with them. She chose to ask for protection from the coming battle because she truly believed that Yahweh was going to give the land to his people. She trusted what she knew of Yahweh, the God of heaven above and earth below, to ask for kindness from the Israelites for both herself and her entire family. Yes, she was taking a risk, but she truly trusted the God she was taking a risk on. So how'd that work out for her? What happened to Rahab? Well, to finish up the story, the spies responded by swearing an oath to Rahab, telling her that, all right, you don't tell anybody about us, and we will make sure that when we take the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. And then they told Rahab to hang a scarlet window, a scarlet cord out of the window of her house, the window that looked out over the countryside, as a marker and that anyone in her house during the battle would be protected. As a quick note here, isn't it interesting that the spies used a scarlet cord? Think back to Exodus and the angel of death, who passed over the houses of the Israelites who put blood on their doors and lentils. And now the Israelites are going to pass over the house protected by the scarlet cord and leave Rahab and her family alive. And then what happened? Well, for that, you need to go to the... Joshua chapter 6, verses 22 through 25. You don't have to turn there. We're not going to read it. I'm just going to summarize to save time. But here's what happened. Here's, what, here's the incredible and inconceivable way God answered Rahab. After the walls had fallen, Joshua sent the two spies back to Rahab's house to take her and her family out of the city and into safety. And it must have been amazing to walk up to the utter destruction that had been the walls of Jericho 
and see the house of Rahab, the house that had been built into the walls of the city, the house that was still standing with the scarlet cord hanging from the window. If Bassini had been there, he surely would have said, inconceivable. And Rahab's face saved not only herself, but her entire family. Now, that must have been a fun family conversation, by the way. So, Mom, Dad, made a little deal with the Israelite spies. How about we all have family reunion at my house until this whole thing with the Israelites blows over? What do you think? I doubt it went that way. It's probably a lot more intense conversation. I'm sure it was way harder for Rahab. After all, she was a prostitute. And while that profession was not illegal or socially unacceptable in the Canaanite society, as we or the Hebrew society would have found it, Rahab was probably not the favorite daughter, not the one her parents bragged about to the neighbors. But again, Rahab trusted God enough to act on what she believed to save her loved ones. And even that's not the end of the story. If you look at Matthew 1, you will see the name of Rahab. A Canaanite prostitute was part of the genealogy of Jesus. She married Salmon. She gave birth to Boaz. Think about it. Rahab was Ruth's mother-in-law. God used two women who normally would have been despised in Hebrew culture to bring his son into the world. From a prostitute to a respected wife and mother. A complete new life and identity for Rahab. Just inconceivable trust that leads to an amazing new life and destiny. More proof that God has always loved us and always had a plan for our salvation. What an amazing story of faith and trust. Which brings me to why I love this story so much. Because I had a Rahab in my life. Her name was Lottie, and she was my grandmother. She was born in 1918 in Buckhannon, Virginia, one of 11 children. And she was by no means a perfect woman, but she was the one shining the example of faith in my life. At 23, she became an unwed mother, and she never married the father of her daughter, who was my mother. Now, I don't know the whole story behind this, and nothing on earth could have compelled me to ask my grandmother something so personal. The woman had a gift for squashing the sass out of smart-mouthed children. <laughs> and to this day, I have never experienced a more effective stink eye. It could stop my sister and I in our tracks, just so you know. But there were definitely consequences to her actions. Her reputation suffered. My mom suffered the social stigma of being an illeg illegitimate child. Uh, Grandma's life was not easy, but she raised her daughter. She worked over 30 years in a sewing factory day in and day out, sewing piecemeal shirts and skirts and pants. She married and buried two husbands. She never learned to drive, never had a computer, and I never saw her sit idle a day in her life. In fact, she was the woman who ironed blue jeans and underwear. You need to know this. <laughs> and while all of this is interesting, what I remember best is that she loved Jesus and trusted him to meet her needs. She read her Bible every day. I still have her Bible. I hold it sometimes and think of her. I can't actually read it yet. It still makes me cry. She prayed for her family every day. She attended the same small Baptist church for as long as I can remember until the time she moved to Florida to live with my mom. And even then, she continued to tithe to that church until the day she died. She tried every day to live as Jesus would. And through it all, I don't think she knew the impact she had on her family. My mom came to know Jesus late in life. 
My sister and I both followed Jesus. My daughters, her great-granddaughters, followed Jesus. And today, she has one and one-half. Yes, indeed, big announcement. My older daughter is pregnant. I am going to be a grandma times two, and this is the happy dance. <laughs> and she's not here, so she can't be embarrassed. <laughs> but today, she has one-and-a-half great-grandchildren who will be raised by godly parents. Not a bad legacy for a dirt poor farm girl from Virginia. She may not have been perfect, but she was faithful. And she acted on that faith, and she blessed those around her. And I don't think I would be here today without her influence. But what I want to leave you with is this. We all have the opportunity that Rahab, my grandmother, did. We all can know God, and we can trust him and trust that he will keep his promises. And more importantly, we can trust that there is nothing in our past that he cannot redeem. There is nothing we have done that can continue to separate him from us. There is nothing we have done that he cannot use for good. All we need to do is trust him, act on our faith, and then we can leave a legacy of real faith in action, just like Rahab and my grandmother. Now Steve's going to come back up, and we're going to kind of wrap things up real quick. We're going to talk about how we want to respond to these stories. We want to talk about how do we live by faith. What actions can we take today to live by faith, a faith that may seem inconceivable? Well, like Rahab, we can have inconceivable trust. Now, a lot of you do this, and I want to encourage you to continue to do this, but if you're not, you need to carve out time in your week to learn more about God. I don't care if you pray, read your Bible, do a Bible study, whatever it does, spend some time getting there the God that loves you. And then we can trust that God can redeem anything in our past. We can let ourselves not be held back by things that we've done in our past, by things that have happened into our past. We can move forward and act and do the things that God would have us to do. And one way we can do that is just watch what's going on around us. Watch what God is doing and join in. Pray with Steve and the other elders as they search for a date. Serve in the church somehow. There's a million ways you can do it. Whatever God is prompting you to do, that's what we would encourage you to do. And if you've made this step of trusting Jesus, then you have the Holy Spirit living inside of you. And we need to learn how to listen to that still, small voice and then obey with inconceivable obedience. Maybe somebody here today has trusted Jesus but hasn't been baptized yet. That's an easy step of faith action to do. We do it the first Sunday of every month. Or maybe there's a habitual sin in your life. That the Lord and the Holy Spirit are saying it's time today. Trust and obey and take action against the habitual sin. Maybe it's time to start giving more. Not only your money, but your time and your efforts. Some of you are already doing this crazy thing of adopting a child. Wow. That, I mean, that's got so much Jesus stuff over it, it's amazing. But maybe, maybe the Lord's prompting you to obey in that way. Maybe, maybe you're getting prompted to share the gospel in a more meaningful way. Which maybe a friend or maybe a whole group of people. Uh, maybe when the announcement was made about marriage, the marriage uh, study next week with Jim and Gail Williams, maybe there's something in your head said, I need to do that. Whether your marriage is in good shape or bad shape, we all need to work on our marriage. We would not be here for 34 years if we hadn't worked on our marriage. And if Vicki hadn't worked on me, I need a lot of work. 
But sign up for that. It'd be really helpful for the servants who are putting the chairs and tables up and getting the food. Go online and sign up if you're going to go. But most important, what we want to leave you with today before we go sing some more songs, take communion, is what Vicki said, God can redeem anything in our past. There is no sin too great for Jesus. And then ask Jesus, ask the Holy Spirit, what faith step are you asking me 